everyone. Welcome to Solace. My name is Iona and this is my podcast where I aim to bring light to social justice issues. And I'm so sorry. It's been so long since the last episode. I think the last one was in August. Um, it was with the Larder in East Belfast talking about local, poverty, uh, local food poverty and things like that. But um, yeah, we're back with the bang and I'm so excited to have this guest on today. It is the amazing Tony McCauley. So hi, Tony. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, Iona. Thank you very much for inviting me to be on your podcast. No, thank Delighted. you for being here. Um, would you like to tell us just three fun facts about yourself so the audience can get to know you a bit more? Okay, three fun facts about me. Well, the first one is I'm talking to you from my office. And uh, in my office, I have two remote control Daleks <laughs> and one remote control Cyberman that have never been out of the box. I have... Uh, an inflatable Dalek. I have a sh- I have a small figure of David Tennant as the Doctor, and um and I have a TARDIS clock all in oh one. Oh my office. goodness! So I love that. about me. <laughs> I love that. That's it. Says so much. I like, guess like you're so interested in like Star Wars and Doctor Who and everything like that. And it's like, it's like a tour. It's like a tour of your office. This yes. Is, you're you aren't just listening to Solis. You're listening to a sneak peek inside scoop tour of Tony McCauley's office right now. <laughs> oh, I love that. So, uh, did did you want more than? Did you want me to tell three, you another three fun facts? If you've got three, I know it's hard to think. I know it's hard to think. Oh well, another so another fun fact about me is. Um, for my 50th birthday, I went to the ABBA Museum in Sweden, in Stockholm. That was my 50th birthday present. The whole way to Sweden, because I've been a lifelong ABBA fan as well. So, and I also went to see ABBA Voids last week, or, or last year. And I've actually, just yesterday, I entered my email into the draw for the first year anniversary performance. And I might get tickets for that. You never know. I was on a voyage. I've heard. I've heard a bit about it because it was it weird because they were like holograms or. It was it was incredible because you you really believed that they were there. Yeah. And I mean everybody knew they weren't there. Mm-hmm. But it felt as if it was so good. It felt as if they were there. And you know you started. You know they would tell jokes when they were introducing the songs or maybe tell a story that made you feel quite emotional. And you were sort of thinking, I'm laughing or almost crying because of a some lights on the yeah. stage they're not actually <laughs> here it was, it was amazing experience no it's incredible what technology can do genuinely because they do they look so realistic it's insane yeah no, it's incredible yes and the third fun fact about me is that my granny my granny was played by a talented young <laughs> actor from northern ireland called iona holt <laughs> it's 2022 Oh, who's that? I, I don't know her. I don't know her. <laughs> yeah, so, so nobody will be asked can say that. No, no one else can say that. Well, apart from apart from the original Big Isabel and Paperboy, he can oh, also. Oh yes, that was twenty eighteen Big Isabel. Yes, twenty eighteen. There's been a few generations, but no. If people don't know, basically, Tony is an incredible author and peacemaker. He's written um a, a, a numerous books. We've got, but the most. Famous ones are probably Paperboy and Breadboy, the series about his life. And they have been made into two incredible musicals with the British Youth Music Theatre. And I had the amazing privilege to be in Breadboy last summer. And it was just such an amazing experience. So shout out to the Breadboy cast and crew because they were amazing. Um, But yeah, I would definitely recommend reading and buying those books because they are really wonderful reads, genuinely. And Tony, because Solis is, well, it means light in Irish, um, what is something that's brought light into your life recently? Recently? Well, in the I suppose in the past five years, I, um, I've got involved in coaching um, a young man called Emmanuel Sabanye, also known as Trinity, uh, who, who leads us a, a youth. Uh, movement and social enterprise project in the slums of Kampala in Uganda and I met him about five years ago and I offered to coach him and have been basically ever since working in partnership with him and the amazing things that he's doing with young people and women and uh, in in one of the poorest slums in the world has brought real uh, joy and light to me. It was funny I always used to think 
you know, I used to watch Comic Relief every year and watch all these celebrities going to Africa and standing crying because they were so upset about the terrible things that they saw. And my experience was being, you know, I, I have seen real poverty, but my experience in Uganda was was just being inspired and having a smile on my face at the amazing yeah. people that I've met here making a difference in their own communities. And so I would say that, um, yeah, working with Trinity has been brought great light to my life. In fact, I was just I was just on WhatsApp with them there just a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. and we just got really good news that uh, we've had a big investment in the social enterprise, the biggest he's ever right. had, which will enable him to give out loans to young people to start their small businesses in the slum. Uh, it's it's a so it's a big day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's brought a lot of light in my life, just being part of that over the past few years. Oh, that is really wonderful, genuinely. And I think, as you are saying, like there is such a sort of knowledge gap almost about what it's really like to for life in Africa. I did an episode with the amazing Grace Sabanda um, about life as a teenager in Zimbabwe. And we're just bringing the parallels between Northern Ireland and Zimbabwe and the sort of just the cultural, obviously there are differences, but the cultural similarities that genuinely just bring us together as people. And Trinity's an amazing guy. I, I have had the opportunity to meet him, but also just yeah. from things that my mom has told me about him and the work that he's doing over there with Levixen and everything it's just it is really wonderful so I'm glad I'm really really glad about that investment today and I'm sure that's going to make such a big difference in people's lives yeah it's going to be huge huge impact it's going to have so it's very exciting so Tony we're gonna get into our sort of proper conversation today but I just wanted to have a sort of a short synopsis about what you do what is the sort of what has your journey been to working where you are today but also just what what do you do on like a day-to-day basis in terms of your work so I think probably I do a mixture of things yes Uh, my my wife Leslie says I do far too much but I I do (laughs) I do a mixture of things so the first thing that I would do is my background is in community development and youth work and peace building so I, you know, for the past 20, 25 years, I've worked, you know, as a consultant with organizations who do that kind of work, mainly in Northern Ireland, but sometimes in other parts of the world as well. Um, and uh, so that that's really, so my, my, my passion is peace building and reconciliation work. So I've worked, I worked in that field for many, many years, starting out, out in the 1980s. And so I still, I'm still involved, but I'm more sort of, I'm a consultant to organizations who are doing that work nowadays. Um, in recent years, I've done more work with organisations working with homelessness and refugees and those sorts of issues as well. So that's one strand of my work, which is mainly with uh, charities. The, the other strand of my work, which kind of emer- which grew out of that, was I then started about 10 or 15 years ago to bring my learning and experience and tools and methodologies from that sector into the private sector. So I would I would coach senior leaders in big companies. So I would coach maybe the CEO of a bank or wow. um, the senior executive team of a big retailer. Um, um, and so I do leadership development and coaching, team coaching and executive coaching uh, and, and mostly outside of Northern Ireland, you know, around the world, actually. Um, so that's a, that, that's kind of a, that's the sort of work I never imagined I would be doing, but I, I do some of that. Um then the other strand of my work would be um, my my creative side, my writing. Um, you know, so I've just published the new book, which we're going to chat about, "Kill the Devil." Um, I'm I'm collaborating, starting to collaborate on a little theatre piece with a, a Nigerian theatre director who's recently moved to Northern Ireland. Um, about the experiences of Nigerians who come to live in Northern Ireland. So I'm just starting out. Working, we're we're cooking up a collaboration. Oh, exciting! That. Yeah, that's new, and I'm working on a new book at the minute, which is um time travel adventure set in Belfast. Oh goodness gracious! I can just <laughs> imagine like your your younger self absolutely loving that, like genuinely. Oh, that's exciting. So um, so that's and then the thing about writing is you spend a lot of time, which I didn't know until I became a writer, was that you spend a lot of time doing other things as a writer, such as, you know, book readings and festivals and um, uh, and then things that emerge that was unexpected, like the, the, the musicals and, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes there's a bit of screen interest and like I get involved in that. None of that is, the screen interest hasn't come to fruition so far. 
fingers crossed, but but I, 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 I'm involved in you know in those processes as well. So there's a whole other side of being a writer that isn't just about you know writing the next book. So that keeps me busy as well. And then I suppose the fourth strand of what I do would be the what I would call my contribution, which you know my voluntary work, which would basically be you know that involvement in Uganda and also similarly being involved in uh, Rwanda with the development of a reconciliation centre in Rwanda, which aims to share the stories of forgiveness and reconciliation from Rwanda around the world. So that, wow. that would kind of be my voluntary commitment. Yeah. No, you seem to lead such a busy life, but it must be it must be so incredibly fulfilling and rewarding, the things that you do, and they all merge so nicely in together and sort of you can intertwine all of your different passions, I think. Yeah, well, I you know I love what I do. I love everything that I do, and um, and it is it is very fulfilling and and rewarding work. And I do I, I like it especially when things come together. Yes. Um, you know, uh, so for example, that this this new book has it, it brings together my my interest in reconciliation with my love for writing mm-hmm. as well, and my and my love for East Africa. So it's um, it's it's lovely when those things all come together as as well but i do i must say i i enjoy everything that i do um and what's most what I, I i find myself with very different people in my, my work so you know i remember one day i was i was doing a focus group with unemployed teenagers in west belfast in the morning and in the evening i was facilitating a session with the top team of a bank in london in the city of london wow. that evening <laughs> And, um, and, you know, other times I've been facilitating a session with, with, you know, senior executives in the HSBC tower in Canary Wharf while messaging people in ref- a refugee camp in Kenya <laughs> on WhatsApp. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so from the poorest part of the world to the richest part of the world. And I find, so I find myself sort of moving between those worlds. And the thing I find most interesting about that is people are just the same. Yeah. You know, you know, no matter what country you're in or what level they're at, people we're all the same. You know, we're all, we all have our we all have our self doubt, and uh, everyone has their you know issues of confidence at times, and uh, from the top CEO to the person who's really struggling that can't get a job. You know, it's 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 it's. it's I find it amazing that we're all just you know fragile human beings, no matter exactly. what our role is. No, we're all just exactly the same at our core and we all you know are driven by different like passions and desires and motivations and I think that is the wonderful wonderful thing about your work is you get to meet with so many different people and just hear so many incredible stories and I just think that's really wonderful and you did you mentioned your work on the peace uh working on sort of on the peace line and with peace and reconciliation and I was actually talking to my mom and she said you used to work for the 174 trust and Mm. I was just wondering what's how did you end up initially working with that? Because obviously maybe you sort of didn't expect to find yourself in that sort of field. No, I mean, I, so I was at university in the um, early eighties. Uh, that, that's in my book, All Grew Up. It's all about yeah. my university years. Yeah. And um, so I, I wanted to be Steven Spielberg or Terry Wogan. So I wanted <laughs> to be a, a filmmaker or a broadcaster. That's, and I did media studies. So that's what I was mm-hmm. studying. But while I was there, actually, from the time I was in sixth form and right throughout my university years, I volunteered with um, a project that was sort of the, which would become the 174 Trust, which was a summer scheme on the Lower Antrim Road, mm-hmm. which was organized by uh, Presbyterian and Baptist Church on the, lower, uh, on the Lower Antrim Road at that time. It was, it was, a, it was a summer scheme. And then... Um, a few years later, when I had gra- when I I had just graduated, the one seven four trust so so called because they bought one seven four Antrim Road. That was the address. Oh wow! Yes, that was the building, it, and it was an old fallen down three story house with a with a shop below, which they turned into the Salt Shaker Cafe and Youth Club. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so when I just graduated, um, having volunteered a lot over the years there um they were looking for staff and just to, so i was i was the first I, I i was i was employed as a deputy director i was one of the first members of staff there when they were just getting it going yeah. um so that was my first job uh and i and i did um we did youth work we did um 
we had an unemployment scheme for unemployed young people because in that area at the time, youth unemployment was 90%, 90%, nearly everybody was unemployed. And um, and then we did early, early, Leslie and I did early cross community work. So we went and lived on the peace line. So we, we're both Presbyterian, we're both Presbyterians and we lived on the nationalist side of the peace line in the new lodge area and leslie was working with young loyalists at the top of the shankle where i come from and i was working with young republicans in um in uh the new from the new lodge where we were living and we brought them together in our in our wee house on the peace line so that's why I, the book's called little house on the peace yes. line um but that was our first that you know when it was wild i mean it was called murder mile the area we live because it had the highest it the highest concentration of sectarian killings in Northern Ireland. It was wild, you know. Um we we were quite naive, really, you know, to to go and live there and work there. But I don't I don't regret it. But um I sometimes think uh, if my if my kids announced they were going to do that now I would I would be scared for them. <laughs> they were going to do that type type of thing. So yeah, so that's how that's how it all started for me. That was my very first experience of kind of working full time in, yeah. and and for me it was a sense of calling. I felt I felt called from a faith perspective. I felt called to cross the divide and I felt called to work where there was the greatest poverty and where was the greatest violence. To me that was what my calling as a Christian was to be. Mm-hmm. And like people looked at me as if you know as if I was crazy for doing this at the time. Yeah. Um, even people within the churches thought this was crazy. It seemed to be more acceptable. If I'd said I was going to go as a missionary to Malawi or somewhere, that they would have thought that was fine. But to go and do that work in North Belfast, people thought that was a little crazy at the time. Yeah, and I think that honestly seems the sort of mindset still. It's like oh, oh but with my generation especially, if oh, if you want to stay in Northern Ireland, why would you want to do that? You know, why don't you go out and go see the opportunities on the horizon on the mainland or go to America, go go do something with your life? You know, there's nothing here for you. But I think actually, if people if people didn't stay, you know, what what would become of the country? And if people like you didn't, you know, actually. To possibly even a sacrifice and you know not go off to university and things like that and in England you know taking that sacrifice and staying here actually ended up being of the benefit for you well it was a choice like it was a choice I think um, I remember at my sc- the school I went to you know the headmaster encouraged us to leave yeah. I remember my, I remember going to a meeting my parents came to the meeting and he you know he, he were basically encouraged to leave Northern Ireland and um and I and I I considered it obviously, um, but I did want to stay. I did want to stay and try to make a difference. Mm. Um, I, you know, having said that, I've travelled a lot over the years, and that's been good. It's been it's good to get out of Northern Ireland as well. <laughs> you <know>. Definitely, <laughs> you know, to kind of broaden your horizons and all the rest of it. But no, I did. For me, it was a choice to stay and try to make a difference where I could. No, I think that's really good. And it's genuinely, it has inspired me in a way because I've always wanted to go away to, you know, England and things like that and just sort of get out of the country. But as I've gotten older and over the last few years doing this podcast and learning about sort of this sector that you and my mom were working in and it's just really sort of inspired me to actually maybe I can make a difference maybe I could be able to stay here and sort of be a light in a way in Northern Ireland. And I think um, talking about the Good Friday agreements and things like that, um, I was in a group called the Youth and Government Programme with the Belfast YMCA mm. and we got the amazing opportunity after we graduated. Um, six of us were able to sit in a conversation with two groups from two churches in Belfast. So one Catholic church, I think, I actually can't remember the names. One of them was St. Matthew's, um, but two churches in Belfast sort of around the Ravenhill Road area. And it was just an incredible opportunity to hear them and hear what their stories were and their opinions and perspectives but also for them to just listen so attentively to us as young people because I don't think that's something that happens all the time um but we were sort of talking about how how we see the country and things about the Good Friday Agreement and I just wanted to know how did you feel at the time of the agreement I think this is something that needs to be a lot more talked about is the weight of it in society at the moment so how did you feel sort of when it started to come into fruition at first so in, in 1998, I was working for the YMCA, actually. So oh, wow. I, I, I actually remember the first youth and government programme. Seriously? I that was class. 
And at the time, I thought, I mean, it was Belfast. I was working for the National YMCA. It was Belfast YMCA that, that set it up. But yeah. I, I would, it was a brilliant project. Um, so I remember that. But um, in those days, you know, so I was involved in youth work and community relations work, cross-community, cross-border work through the YMCA, very, very much so at that time. And so, you know, it, it was, and that was kind of pre-ceasefire, pre-agreement. So, I, you know, I was doing cross-community work and, building work before the agreement yeah and it was really hard it felt I always used to think it felt like you were you were like a wee you know that image of a wee tiny fish swimming against all the big sharks and all yes. the big whales you know that it was that that was the image because like it really very few people were really doing it there were there were some of us doing it in youth work and and women's organizations and, and a few people in the churches were doing it and you know organizations like Caramela, but it wasn't remotely mainstream. It was seen mm -hmm. as a bit a bit uh, marginal in those days. Um so to me to me it, it was really important that and and you know I would have swung between being hopeful about the future and that's why I was doing all this peace building work and believing that we were capable of more, we were capable of peace. Um but at the same, on the other hand, sometimes thinking this is never going to change, this is this is going to be like this. It was all I could ever remember in my life, and that part of me was thinking it's just going to be like this for the rest of my life. This is the way it's going to be. It can't. We can't do it. So yeah. then, when we did it, and mm -hmm. we got to that stage of the agreement, it was it was. I found it hugely emotional. I remember I was in. Um, I was actually at the YMCA European Conference in Malta. <laughs> And they, so there were people from all over Europe mm -hmm. and they, they, the contingent from YMCA Ireland, we, there was a, I think it was coffee break or lunch break or something. And I remember there were, there were like literally about a hundred people in this room and we got the TV put on because we want, because they were announcing the result of the referendum, you know, the yes, no referendum yeah. live on Sky News or something. Okay, nice. And I remember us sitting watching it on the, t on the television screen and they, when they announced yes, I I actually I cried, yeah. I broke I broke down. It was very embarrassing to cry in front of hundred people. <laughs> oh no! Um, but that's that's how I felt. It was that, and it was it was like it was tears of joy in some way, but it was almost tears of kind of it's over. You mm -hmm. know, it's of relief, tears of relief. It's over. Um. So I I felt very emotional that day, and then afterwards, through all the ups and downs. I would say probably for the first 10 years of the peace process, I felt very optimistic. Yeah. Um, um, for the past 10, 15 years, we've got it's stuck. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm I'm still I'm an optimist by by personality, yeah. so I'm still optimistic about the future. I don't think we're going to go backwards, but um I am frustrated at how we've got stuck, particularly around reconciliation. Yeah. We haven't done what has happened in other countries very successfully, and that's why we're stuck. Yeah, um, it's frustrating that we don't seem to have the leadership to make that happen at the minute so far. Yeah, and I think what I'm picking up from you here is like when you were working um, in sort of peace work, you were you weren't working past the ceasefire. You were working in the crossfire almost, like you were working. Yeah. In, in the midst of it all and I think that is something that is really going to drain your hope for a situation that you know you just can't see what it could do but I remember watching the not to not to say I'm watching the episode of Dairy Girls but I was watching the the episode of, the last episode of Dairy Girls whenever the they did the referendum I think it was such a good view of what happened especially from like a young person's perspective it's like that no one knew like it, you were really were taking a plunge but I think it was you know what the girls in, in the episode are doing is like you know it's what's what's what can hurt like what will happen if if it doesn't you know it's it's better to just take yeah. the plunge and and vote yes and the hope that they they had was just so it was just so tangible and I think it's just that emotion that you felt it's so real and it's so raw because it was like this country it's been through so much and to have I think just an acknowledgement of what needs to take place was so important and I think definitely people what people hopefully are taking away from this episode is how important it was and I'm just wondering and well you've sort of touched on this a little bit but you have your hopes been fulfilled and do you think that the decisions made in the Good Friday Agreement were the right ones or do you think you could maybe add anything to it take anything away from it I think I think 
I think they were the right ones at the time. Yeah. Um, because it worked somehow miraculously it worked <laughs> time and everyone agreed um i wouldn't take anything away from it but there are parts of it that have been severely neglected yeah. there are parts of it that haven't been fulfilled I suppose the most politically contentious things have been delivered but the things that are important to me around things like you know there was you know there's supposed to be a bill of rights promoting integrated education and reconciliation those parts that actually the parts that the women's coalition insisted went into it and wouldn't been into it if it wasn't wouldn't have been in the agreement. Mm. The parts that it's it's not interesting. The parts the women insisted were put into it are the parts that haven't been fulfilled. Yeah. Um. But kind That's of the all. the tough things, the tough things the big political parties were demanding of each other. They had to be in it, and they were in it, and they have they have been largely fulfilled. So um, I mean I think it's it it's it's the most important thing is it gave us peace. It saved no more people. Well, largely give us peace. Obviously, there have been continued to be, you know, deaths, but it's been on a hugely smaller scale than over that period of time. So it did give us, it's given us peace, largely, which is the most important thing. And I think of my my children were born in ninety three and ninety six, so they're they're children of the ceasefire and the peace. Yeah, and they they have never known what I grew up with and the the the, the fear and the horror of waking up every day. Or listening to bombs and shooting and and going to funerals of friends and things like that. So, so that's the most important thing. We've had peace, um, uh, but to me, it's unfulfilled. We, reconciliation is unfulfilled. Yeah. Uh, we, there's been some really good reconciliation work, often delivered by the same people who were doing it before the great agreement. You know, mm-hmm. um, and others who got involved as well, but. Uh, I mean, we haven't, we don't even have a day where we remember the people who lost their lives. Yeah. You know, we haven't had a truth-telling process. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be the same as what they did in South Africa or Rwanda, but we haven't, um, we haven't done, we haven't agreed anything like that. And the result of that is then we remain unstable. And so, you know, Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom, as we currently are, remains unstable because we are unreconciled. And if there's ever a united Ireland, the North will be unstable and the whole of Ireland will be unstable in some way yeah. because we remain unreconciled. So I I really hope at some stage there's there's a leadership that gets that. Mm-hmm. Um, even just even if they don't want reconciliation out of for the sake of love or forgiveness or hope, even if they just want it out of political stability and economic prosperity, we need it for that. Yes. Exactly. At least, at least, do it for that. Mm-hmm. Um. So, so it is. It, it. I think the promise of the of of the Good Friday Agreement has been unfulfilled. There were there were times that you saw real hope from it. I remember there were times actually with Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley. I could see that we could really be transformed here. Mm-hmm. This could really be transformed. Um, you know that was the era where they were mocked for being the Chuckle Brothers because they were being warm and human with each other after their pasts, but um, it it seems to have just gone downhill since then. Yeah. And and the risk is, honestly, the risk is if you don't reconcile, you it will we there will be at some stage some return to violence at some stage, um, and uh. That I mean, that's history shows us that throughout the world. So we, you know, it's it's really important that perhaps taking stock after twenty five years, there's a, a renewed commitment, yeah, to to reconciliation and becoming a integrated society with taking the peace walls down, more integrated housing, um, uh, you know, people living together, uh, people um, being educated together, playing together. Um, you know, this could be an amazing place. I think it is an amazing place, but I think it could be so much better. Yes. If we were, re- if we got that reconciliation part, it's almost like we're still broke. We're still broken in some way, which holds us back. And if we could get a bit, if we could get enough healing, we could just really take off as a place to be. 
100% Northern Ireland has such potential like genuinely mm. it does it's like a launch pad for the reconciliation mm. process it has you know all of the criteria ready to go there's people willing to do it but it ha- just hasn't been put in place and Tony I was just wondering from your work and sort of conversations in Rwanda and beyond sort of throughout your life has this changed your thoughts on what we should have done or what we might be able to do because I know you're sort of talking about how other countries have done the reconciliation process better. And I think better is putting it lightly. They've done it extremely amazingly compared to how Northern Ireland has even attempted it. So I was just wondering what sort of, what of those things be? Well, what, what, the first thing is um, to find a way of remembering the people who lost their lives, to acknowledge the suffering and of, of victims and survivors of the troubles. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, Rwanda do this beautifully. Every year on the anniversary of the genocide against the Tutsis, they they, they have a a day of remembering. And it was interesting. It was just it was just last week. And I was looking I was looking at some of the videos of it. And most of the people in the videos were were young people who were younger than 29. And they just come together quietly. And there's there's just a very simple ceremony and they hold candles just to remember the people who lost their lives. And I and I think you know, what's what's contentious about that? Yeah, you know, um, we could do, we could do that. I mean, I, I've been involved with an organisation called Healing Through Remembering in Northern Ireland. It's a voluntary organisation who have been promoting these ways of dealing with the past. They've done brilliant research. They've made suggestions and from other parts of the world, but it's never been taken up at mm-hmm. Stormont. Um, but they have they have proposed. They have established. A, a, what they call a day of reflection in June every year, and you know some some people mark it and some churches mark it and some reconciliation mark mark it. But I would love that to become official. Yeah, that it was our day of reflection and remembering for everyone, just to acknowledge the people that lost their lives. Um, so that would be to me that would be a simple thing to do, but very powerful. And I, I think of young people. In Northern Ireland, were expected to be part of the day of remembering. I think then it would sort of be a sense that you're as a as a person who lives here, you're expected to have a heart for reconciliation. Mm-hmm. It, I find it difficult when I see and hear on social media a younger generation being sectarian, um, and um, in some ways it's not a surprise because sectarianism is passed down, but in a post ceasefire generation, and to to see that. Uh, that um, disrespect and intolerance in a younger generation is really, really difficult. And I think it, but the sim- I think by the simple act of everyone being expected to remember on one day every year, I think it would help to combat that and help people to think about what they say or what what they chant or what they sing or you know all of that, you know. Um. The other thing is that most societies that have had successful reconciliation processes have a, had a truth-telling process. Rwanda used an, a sort of very old traditional community court mm-hmm. system to do that. And South Africa had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think that we, with our tradition and our this part of the world of storytelling, we could have some way of providing a safe space for people to tell the truth. And for people to hear the truth about what happened to their loved ones, um, and I, you know, I, I, you know, I think it it's possible to do something, and if we, you know, if we don't do it, those sores remain open, and they, those those open sores are passed down the generations. Um, the other the other thing that I noticed, particularly in Rwanda, which we don't talk about much here, is forgiveness, yeah. and in Rwanda that. I've experienced in Rwanda what I would call extreme forgiveness, where, you know, survivors of genocide have forgiven the perpetrator who killed their husband and their children. And and I've met people, I've heard, met people and heard people tell their stories. And um, we, we have very, very few examples of that kind of real, you know, forgiveness here. And forgiveness here seems to be quite conditional. Um, um, on lots of things, and uh, and I think in Rwanda they don't have as many resources as us. It's not over politicized. They don't throw money at it. 
but there seems to be more humanity and love just to, to, to find a way to live in peace together for the rest of their lives. People are prepared to confess what they did and other people are prepared to forgive what was done to them. That's that's a huge difference between Rwanda and Northern Ireland. And it's it just sounds so simple in the way you're saying it. It sounds like it's it's just not something that's contentious. It's not politicized. It's just like a a human sense of com- compassion almost. I think that, and I'm I'm not I'm not sort of disacknowledging the the difficulty of it because it is incredibly hard. But the examples shown, I mean, the ways that have gone about it. I've heard of the Cow for Peace movement. I remember you talking about this at your book launch. Yes. And I think you yes. tell us actually a bit about that because I think that's a really wonderful example of sort of a nice way to go about it. Yeah, so Cow for Peace is a is, a, is an initiative in Rwanda where a, a perpetrator and a survivor are gifted a cow to race together. So basically they're given a small business to run together, which okay. you know, which basically a cow is in, Rwanda, in a village in Rwanda. Yeah. Um, and so and they, they raise the cow, they care for the cow together. And the first calf that the cow produces is given to the survivor. And then the second calf is, give, is given to the perpetrator. And they so they, you know, they 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 develop a relationship and they raise this animal together. They care for it. And they, they, they but they also have a business and an income mm-hmm. from it as well. And it is a very simple way of of. of them building their relationship together and working yeah. together um that you know and it is a thing that what i what i've learned from that and from what i've seen in rwanda is reconciliation and forgiveness is it, it's not easy but actually it is simple yeah um it's hard enough without making it complicated exactly you know yeah. and if we could get it, if we could get back to it being simple then people can kind of you know, it, it's it, it's not easy for people to forgive, um, but at least if it's if it's if it's simple, it is not quite so difficult in some way. Yeah, and I think I think what's brilliant about Car for Peace is that it's focusing their minds on something nothing to do with what happened. It's not, you know, it's it's not completely that is the overarching conversation. It's actually just allowing them to build a, a human relationship just yeah. on a blank slate on just a basis around whether they're helping each other out and they're building this business. And I think maybe what Northern Ireland could possibly learn from that is everything's so caught up in what happened and in the past and in legacy issues and it's all quite over politicized. And I think maybe if we take it down to strip it down to actually just a human level of compassion and sincerity and within that you know even authenticity just it's it it sounds so simple it really does and I think Mm. it's brilliant to have these successful examples out there to show actually lot Northern Ireland could it could do this like there is hope like a sort almost like a revival of hope is needed because I think the agreement was such a hot spot for hope I guess because you know it was something new it was finally like an acknowledgement and I think maybe what's needed is actually just is an eagerness or an urgency mm. almost as needed I think in today's yeah. society anyway yes Definitely. I agree I agree with you Iona it, it's um I think there is an urgency on it mm-hmm. um uh because you know if if if, if we don't find some way of making progress and reconciliation in the next 25 years um we, we will have failed actually and, and we will have we will have left a legacy of instability yeah to, for the future that I think that's that will be the legacy and after such having such an achievement of the agreement to then end up with a legacy of instability is not what anybody wants exactly and I think it's it's interesting to think of my sort of experience of the of Stormont and our devolved parliament has been entirely instability. Like I was born in 2005. So it's it's really all just been sort of, I think it was 2007 was sort of the, the year that it all sort of collapsed for the first time. And I think seeing that, it's like, that's not what my parents would have wanted for my government to be. I think they hoped for so much more by this point. And all I've sort of known is a, a collapsed government and sort of instability within Northern Ireland. So I think what we're coming to now at the 25th anniversary it's less of 
sort of let's think about what it did and more sort of what should it do now in, in a way it's like what what does the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement mean for the next 25 years instead of let's actually look back on the remarkable peace that was brought and I think it's stark that that's how it is right now but also it is I, I'm I'm glad that there's sort of more conversation around it at the moment and how actually there's so much further that we could go but the Northern yeah. Ireland has so much potential and so many people willing to do it and I'm hoping yeah that it almost makes a bit more change at this point. Well, I think it's an opportunity for us to, I think it's an opportunity for us to sit up and reflect on all of that. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, if 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 you regard their success, the peace process as a power sharing devolved government, we've had years and years and years of not having that now. Mm -hmm. with, it, with this current stint and then the previous one. Mm -hmm. um, so we've had many years of not having a devolved power sharing government. Yeah. Um, and that you know there may need to be some changes within you know within the the agreement and the and the structures and the process. That it, it I think it probably does need to evolve. Yeah. Twenty five years on, I think that's fair enough. Um. Uh. But uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, a future of instability isn't it isn't going to be a prosperous, happy place and it's not going to be a place where young people want to stay no. if, if 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 it's just lurching from one crisis to the other no and I'm, I'm just I, I think seeing my my friends and what they're thinking about it I mean they they don't they have a a lot of people I know my age don't even have a knowledge of the whole situation and the sort of what the Good Friday Agreement went meant for our country so I mean you mentioning seeing young people actually leaning into sectarianism it's it's sad and it's disappointing but it's also expected almost it's not it's not a shock because it is passed down through generations so I'm I'm glad that this conversation is being had about what could happen and I think it's interesting hearing about your experiences in Rwanda and you've written about this in your new book um Killed the Devil and I was just wondering sort of what did you take from your experience that you put into the book but also what are you what are you hoping for just tell us all about it I, I'm, I'm really interested I'm looking forward to reading it so um well so on one of the days when I was in Rwanda I'd spent the day up in the, the in the villages and the hills and I'd been at storytelling workshops where perpetrators and survivors had stood up and told their stories and I remember for example a woman standing up and telling the story of how the man standing beside her had killed her husband and her children. And then she came, went on to tell her story of how she'd forgiven him. Mm -hmm. And then he told his story of how he became involved in the genocide, took responsibility for it, everything that he had done, suffering he'd caused, had gone to jail. But when he came back to the village, confessed and asked this woman for forgiveness and he found forgiveness. And I had never heard the like of it. Yeah. And it wasn't they were they weren't exceptional. They were then another couple get up and started saying similar things, and then another couple, and then and I, I was blown away by it. So that that evening when we returned to Kigali that evening, um, a friend of mine had put me in touch with a young screenwriter in Kigali and said, "Oh, I I know a writer from Northern Ireland who's visiting. Do you want to meet him?" And so I met Juven Sabimana just for coffee. Yeah, and. Uh, we talked about writing and he told he's a screen he was a screenwriter he told me about the different screenplays he'd written and they sounded interesting but they weren't really the sort of thing i was interested in but um but then i said i told him how impacted i'd been by what i'd just seen and i said if you would like to collaborate on something around these amazing stories of forgiveness and reconciliation uh, you know let's let's keep in touch mm -hmm. and uh so so, and I didn't know if I'd ever hear from him again. You know, sometimes you meet people that's pleasant, but you don't know if you'll ever meet again. And about a month later, he sent me the synopsis of a screenplay, which ultimately became Kill the Devil, the novel. Mm -hmm. And what he had done in between, he didn't, at that stage, Jivens didn't have a, a phone. He didn't have a computer. Wow. And he walked four miles every day to the American embassy where students were allowed free usage of the computer for an hour, one hour every day. Wow. So he walked for four miles for an hour on the and and created the the synopsis of Kill the Devil, and then he sent it to me. And I remember opening it and I think, 
oh my goodness, this is really, this is really good. Uh -huh. This is exactly the sort of story I want to tell. And um, so then we kept in touch and then he, then I was really busy, but he got on with it and he ended, and then he wrote the, he wrote the screenplay. And then he sent me the screenplay. And then after that, basically over a period of three years, we went through the process that I basically turned each scene into a chapter of the book. Yeah. And then we worked together. We made some changes and I had some suggestions around the story and how maybe some other characters. And, you know, we worked we worked together in that. And he made sure it was all authentic in terms of Rwanda. And I, I, I was determined it was going to work in terms of the structure of it and the reconciliation element of it. And that's how we did it over three years. And we finally finished it during lockdown. Wow. Um, you know, so I would write a chapter, send it to him, and he'd make the edits and send it back to me, and then I'd send it back to him. And and sometimes this was coming back and forward on WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and email. Um, but that's how we did it over three years until finally we we got there. <laughs> and it's so worth it because I was I was at your book launch obviously and it was just such an incredible story to tell it was amazing hearing from Juvens and just learning about really what it what it meant to him and also what it meant to you and I think it was so interesting just knowing how much of a difference this could really make in Northern Ireland hearing this story of reconciliation and could you give us a little bit of a synopsis of the story don't don't spoil too much but just a just a basic sort of summary well, the story begins with uh, Patricia, who's the, the main character of the book. And Patricia, uh, it's 10 years after the genocide. Mm -hmm. And Patricia has basically lost all hope. She's lost her family. Um, she's on her own. She's been on her own for 10 years. And she's, she's, she's really given up. She feels abandoned by everybody. And she's lost all hope. Uh, meanwhile, um, Damascene, uh, who she had grown up with and been friends with in their childhood and who had been best friends with her husband. Um, we, we, we find him at the, on the, at the same period of time, 10 years after the genocide. He's in hiding in Kigali, uh, fleeing justice from what he did during the genocide. And really, uh, without giving it away, really the, we, we follow their their journey their separate journey, and then as the book goes on, their their paths cross yeah. again, and uh, and that's what the that's what the the story's all about. Oh, it's it's so it's so wonderful, genuinely, and it's it must have been such an interesting experience for you because hearing the writing process, I mean, that's it's such a like an unusual writing process, but I think definitely fulfilling, knowing it's like this collaboration from two sides of the world. I mean, the fact that it was sent through like WhatsApp and then Facebook message and email, it's like it really it really travelled like the test of time almost, but it just it's worked out so much for for the better. And did you find this like? One of your more one of your more interesting writing processes, but also in terms of what you learned. Oh, it's definitely the most it's definitely the most interesting process. I've never col collaborated. I mean, I collaborated a little bit on the you know in the theater pieces. I contributed a little bit there, and I enjoyed that collaboration too. Yeah. You know, working with other writers and directors and things like that. So I loved that as well. As you know, I enjoyed <laughs> being part of that process. Um, so I do enjoy collaboration generally when I'm collaborating with talented people and um you know the more i got into this process with juvens the more and more i respected his talent and um and and I, you know he he kept me right and you know you know pointed out things that weren't going to work or that weren't quite right mm -hmm. and you know and it's strange now because i'm back to writing on my own again yeah so it's a solo effort again and that's it feels it feels different now almost miss having a writing partner uh-huh <laughs> It's like you you always had someone sort of to fall back on and keep yes. keep right give you give you feedback and you know give you pointers and things like that and you could do the same. I think that's I think that's a really cool thing about collaboration and they always say two is two is better than one. Sometimes I think definitely on that on the kill the devil it was such a beautiful opportunity for collaboration because it just it got two two people who really knew things about peace and reconciliation but also two talented writers in their own right so I think thank you for thank you for writing it I think it's just going to be such a beautiful story to definitely be told in Northern Ireland as well I'm looking forward to reading it 100% Good. I hope so I, hope so. <laughs> I mean our, our dream for Kill the Devil is that it would one day 
hit the screen. That's I that think was, it would be was, perfect for a movie. Perfect. That's that's what Juven's always dreamed of, and mm-hmm. it certainly um, it, that would certainly change his life uh remarkably if that was to happen so that's my dream for it as well no yeah. i'm really really hoping for that, that happens because i just think it would be perfect for a movie genuinely it has just everything that it needs needs to be on a movie 100 yeah. percent. and just to finish us up i think do you have any advice for like a young person who is listening who would be eager to see change see change in peace and reconciliation see change in their local area i know because obviously you were you know, a young boy from the Shankill and maybe you didn't see much hope or didn't think you could do much at Make Much of a Difference and now you're here and you've done so much in your life. So what would you say to a young person like you like you were in, in the Shankill? Well, I was, um, I, as, as, my, as big as Isabel would say, my head was full of sweetie mice. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I was quite, you know, I just did it. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was unusual, and um, you know, people thought it was it was silly at times what I was doing, and um, or didn't like it sometimes. But I, I kind of just my personality was just to do it anyway, and not to be held back. So my advice to young people in particular is, do not allow the adults around you to um, diminish what you could do, or diminish who you are. You, you you know you you don't have to wait till you're older to make a difference. You can make a difference because of because you're young and because of who you are now. And so my 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 advice would be never allow yourself to be diminished or made small, um, or what your contribution could be to be diminished or made small by adults, and and older people around you, and just do it. That's what I that would be my advice. Thank you so much, Tony. That's brilliant. I know that's going to make such an impact. I think people listening to this who who have heard of you and have heard of your work or maybe are you know big fans of your work and just hearing actually that you came from such humble beginnings and you're doing such incredible things right now, I think it's going to make such an impact and be such an inspiration. So thank you so much, Tony, genuinely for being on today. It's just been such a good... I'm so glad to be back doing this, but this is such an incredible episode to be starting off on again and just... Yeah, but everything that we've been talking about has been so, so enlightening, genuinely. So thank you. Thank you very much, Owena. I've, I've really enjoyed the chat. It's been great, the conversation. Thanks very much. No, thank you. And thank you to everyone who has been listening. And yeah, tune in next time. Thanks so much. Bye.